Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Have you ever met someone and thought their job sounded cool? Or perhaps you're wondering how you can get to a position that doesn't seem to match any of the qualifications you have at the moment. Well, if so, this podcast is for you. We found some people with jobs that you might not necessarily know about or expect people to have, and we're going to ask them about how they got there. Welcome to What Do They Do? A podcast about jobs and how people got them. We were lucky enough to speak to Les Macbeth, who works for Future Design School, and she took us through not only what Future Design School do, working with schools, higher education, communities and corporates, but she also took us back on the journey through a variety of different places she's worked and things she's been showing. There's, there's no traditional route to the job that you do now. Welcome to our next episode of What Do They Do? Today, we're joined by Les Macbeth, and I'm here with Ben as well. So, Les, without further ado, tell us a bit more about Um, you. Hi, I'm Les Macbeth, and I'm the Director of Special Projects at Future Design School, where I design programs that help educators and school leaders to embrace their inner experienced designer and evolve their practice to put students and real-world learning at the center. I'm also a lifelong learner who finds joy in big challenges and pushing my own personal limits. Wow, already there are just so many questions that come into my mind that I want to ask. But perhaps let's just start with what you are doing now. You mentioned you work with Future Design School and you work on special projects. So tell us, what does that even mean? I'll start with what what FDS does and then I'll talk about my role. Um, So Future Design School, uh, we partner with schools and districts around the world uh, to support effective learning and really transform education and transform learning uh, to, like I said in my introduction there, put students at the center. Um, we have a, a sort of portrait of a future-ready graduate that we is the, is the foundation of all of our work. And it's built around 
uh, starting at like the really the center of who who a student is uh, thinking about psychological safety and identity and optimism. Um, and then we look at uh, some of those other character traits as well as learning skills um, and all of that sort of in service of building the core competencies of critical thinking, communication, collaboration and creativity. Uh, we do that through programs around design thinking and entrepreneurship and global and future vision. We do a lot of work with schools around equity and inclusion. And um, our goal is really to create uh, learning experiences that better prepare students for the jobs of the future, which I think is great considering this podcast is all about what those jobs really are. And I think um, that's, I think, what's really exciting about this, this show you guys are doing is because students often don't know what those jobs are. And teachers, I think, also often don't know what those jobs are and what those skills are that are needed in order to be successful. So um, we work with schools in several different ways. We do strategic planning with schools. So we work with them to uh, think about what is the strategic foresight that they need in order to think now about the future and how they can redesign their schools um, to be ready for that future. We also work directly with teachers running uh, tons of professional development. And I'll talk more about my journey with FDS in, around that later on, I guess. Um, and we run direct-to-student programming uh, to help them build those skills and the foundational knowledge that they need to be successful. All of that work sounds amazing, and I think really needed in the world that we're in right now. What, <laughs> yeah. what does special projects So special projects, projects is, um, it's, I, I'm essentially being pulled in on a lot of different things. So we, when, my, when I first started at Future Design School, my role was Director of Professional Development. And so the first four years that I was with the company, I was really building out our PD programs, designing new programs and uh, delivering programs for thousands of educators sort of all over the world, which was really exciting and really fun. Um, and as we grew, we built an incredible team of other people working on our professional development programs. And so uh, last year, as I was about to go out on maternity leave to um, have my daughter, uh, we brought in one of those other education leads to really take over the professional development uh, program. And I was sort of repositioned as this director of special projects where I'm really working sort of cross-functionally across all of the different um, verticals within our within our company. So I work on strategy. I also work on PD. I work on student programs sometimes. Um, but mainly I'm developing a lot of new products and programs. So as we start to do... Um, more work around uh, like diversity and equity and inclusion, for example. I'm helping to support that team uh, coming in often um, to work on a specific piece of something and sort of build it out and get it across the finish line and then move on to the next thing. So it's kind of like product designer or like experience designer meets um, uh, what do you like jack of all trades? <laughs> like, what do you need me to do? I'll do it. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of what. I think this, like you, you mentioned about the podcast, I, I think we're finding more and more and more and more people really struggle to explain what their mm -hmm. job is because it isn't one thing anymore. It isn't, oh, I'm in charge of this one thing and that's all I focus on. It's that overview, that range of skills that you've already said you're trying to develop in young people anyway. And I suppose you've got to reflect to yourself, haven't you? You're kind of across... Does that mean that you look you look across all of those and are there certain things and links and trends that you 
you spot coming out of the work that you're doing across the whole organization. Yes, that's definitely true. I think myself, as well as well as my two colleagues, Sandra and Sarah, the three of us are all sort of working across all those different areas. And we're often pulling things out, like saying, did you know that Diane's doing this over here and Rach is doing this over here? And there's actually a lot of connection between them. And maybe we should bring this whole team together to talk about where those connections are. Uh, So that definitely happens a lot. And I think you're right. It's very meta that I'm like, we're, we're kind of training people for this type of work while we're actually living that type of work as well. So and we, I, I forgot to mention that we also work with a lot of big companies. Um, like we work with companies like Google, um, as well as um, we've worked with like law firms and um, other technology companies. We've worked with uh, indigenous communities across Canada. We work with a lot of people outside of education as well. And a lot of that is informing that work that we're bringing back into the K-12 space. So there's sort of this like um, like downward um, like percolation of ideas uh, from the corporate world and from the world of work into our world of education. And we do a lot of work in higher education as well. So we're also we're trying to also move things from a higher education perspective, because that's often the linchpin. You know, when you talk to teachers about things like, what if we had a competency-based model instead of a grades-based model? The answer is always, but higher education needs their grades. And so we're working with a lot of higher education institutions to think about how do they also reimagine their systems and structures to allow for that change to happen in K-12. So you mentioned design thinking as part of your work, but it sounds like systems thinking is is a big part of that as well, of how these different nodes are affecting one another. So K-12 to higher ed, to the world of work, to corporate. Yeah, 100%. I think that well. because design's in our name and because a lot of our work that we started out doing was really around design thinking, we kind of have become known in a way as the design thinking people. But um, I think that you're... you're observation there is is bang on that it's it's a lot more than design thinking that we're doing we're doing a lot of strategic foresight and systems thinking and change management in schools um, in terms of how are we helping schools to really um, have holistic uh, transformation and not just um, change in pockets the changing nature isn't it of work that I think I've, I've just done it then of tried to like categorize bits that you do. And I, I, I keep on falling into that trap with the stuff and myself and a friend were talking about like, you know, design thinking and systems thinking. And actually we kind of build it back down to mm-hmm. solving problems like for people. That's, I always say that well, that's what designers do is they solve problems yeah. for people. And, it, and whether you call it human centered design or design thinking or systems thinking, or, you know, there's so many different, um, like you said, structures that are out there. But at the end of it, it's like, who are the people? What are their needs? And how can we help them? So if we rewind to Les being a child at school and thinking about what she wanted to do when she grew up, what was on your mind then? What did you Oh my think God, I don't think I knew. And I actually, I was be... listening to one of your other episodes um, where you were talking to Brent Lewis, the, the skateboard uh, guy. And, and you, you talked about Ooh. this in that episode that it was like, when you're 15, you don't really know. And, and you'd think that it would be getting better, but it, maybe it's getting worse. But I think for me then, like just for some context, I grew up in uh, a town of 2000 people in the middle of nowhere in rural Ontario before the internet was really a thing. So my worldview was like incredibly limited. I had 
maybe been to Toronto once or twice in my life. My, you know, I'd never been to a big city, really. I didn't know much about the world. And so because of that, I think that what I saw as opportunities for myself were were pretty limited. You know, people that I went to school with, a lot of people I went to school with went and worked in the oil industry because that was uh, sort of the industry around our town. Um, and those of us that were sort of funneled into university because we were the like so-called smart kids, um, it was like, do you want to be a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or, you know, those professions that were were in town. Um, but I remember when I was a teenager, I was really into like the early internet, like early, early consumer internet, not like early 1980s internet, but you know, early nineties internet. Um, when you AOL, yeah. Like dial up first became a thing. Dial up. And I remember telling my parents that I wanted to be a web designer. Uh, and my dad's response was so funny. I remember distinctly, he said, well, what are you going to do? Work at EB tech, which was the dial up internet provider in town at the time. Like he just didn't see that there was this future that was the internet was going to be like such a huge part of. Um, and so I, I kind of was discouraged and thought, okay, well maybe that's not really an optional, an option for me. And so um, I was really interested in the arts, but I was also really interested in athletics. Um, I was a, I got really good grades, um, but I was a terrible student. Like I, I skipped class and went to the beach. I never studied for tests. I just, you know, didn't really take, I was more interested in life outside of school than I was interested in what was happening in the classroom for the most part. Um, and so to me, like the arts were kind of discouraged. It wasn't like a, an area that was encouraged. So I went into, I decided to go into kinesiology um, as a, as a career option um, because I, I think because I had a really influential um, anatomy teacher in high school and um, who really empowered me to be a leader. And, and, and also it was like a, a hard program to get into. And I felt like that's what I needed to do. You know, like this is a difficult thing. So you need to go and do that. <laughs> um, and then of course I changed my mind like seven times. <laughs> Just put my hand up and like say stupid question or that. Kinesiology. Yeah. Oh, kinesiology is... is the study of human movement. So it's, um, it's basically like the science of phys ed. So I was really into athletics and sports. And so it was kind of like, that's what a lot of the kids who were into athletics did. They went and you become like a, a physical therapist or um, a, a chiropractor. And that's kind of what I had in mind. I was like, well, maybe I'll be a physical therapist or a chiropractor. And if that doesn't work out, I'll be a gym teacher was kind of like what I was thinking um, when I went into school. And what actually <laughs> happened? You went through, you went, you chose that course. You did it yeah. because it was hard. And what happened yeah. at the other end of it? Well, it, I never made it to the other end of it. So um, basically in um, in my second year, first year university was kind of like, you know, just figuring out like what life was like outside of my small town. That was like, it was a massive culture shock for me. Um, and uh, and then I, I started to realize that sort of my kinesiology courses were all a lot of like rote memorization and multiple choice tests and and I was doing well, but I just didn't, I didn't find it very stimulating. And then I started taking these other courses as electives in social studies and in particular in art and design and art history. Um, and I just really loved the, the debate and the discourse and these kind of like big ideas that we were tackling in those classes. And um, around the same time, I actually started working in the career center on campus um, and when I wasn't working, I was like a marketing associate or something. And I was helping them to promote their programs. Um, I would spend time in this like 
sort of what now is probably like a pretty ancient sort of take on like a career explorer. I can just imagine like the interface of was very like early 2000s on this thing. But and I remember coming across a job that was called art director. And I was like, that's a job. You can be a job where you, where you direct art. Like, what does that even mean? And um, so that sort of sparked my interest and curiosity in that maybe something more in the realms of the humanities or social sciences could actually be a career path. Um, and around the same time, I, through the same career center, discovered that I could go on exchange to, to the UK. So that's what brought me over to your beautiful Lake District. Uh, nice. And I spent a year in Lancaster uh, studying there. And that's when I, I also switched majors. So I remember calling my parents and saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to change my major to art history and communications. <laughs> and, <laughs> How did that go down? And I just remember my dad was just like, what, yeah. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do with that? That's all you can say is like, what, what is your job going to be when you're done? And I just said to him, dad, I promise you, I will never be unemployed. <laughs> and he was like, okay. You know? yeah. This is the and deal, right? One of his favorite lines, which is like, there's a, so where, uh, you know, I don't think this is a good idea, but there's a time in your life when you need to stop listening to your father. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, dad. My parents were pretty good for life advice like that. So. That's good reflective later. So where, where were you at university in Canada before you moved over? Uh, I was in a, a city called Hamilton at a school called McMaster University. Uh, so it's just outside the GTA. It was like close enough to home that I could go home when I wanted, but um, and a biggish city, but also a really industrial town, like the town I had come from. So it kind of felt uh, manageable. Yeah. So Yeah, I know. But Lancaster's and, very um, different to that. No one told me about Lancaster. I didn't really do my my research before I went moved to Lancaster, and I got there, and I was like, "Wow, there's a lot of sheep here." <laughs> yeah, because we've got we've got a few. There's there's quite a few towns and cities dotted around the UK that kind of were historically like you know the big place to be um, hundreds of years ago. And then kind of other places, particularly around the Industrial Revolution, popped up around them that are kind of obviously got a bit more going on. So I think Lancaster comes into yeah. that category, isn't it? Of kind of it's a big RAF base in Lancaster, um, right? Oh, yeah. But not quite. Is it, is it, maybe I've made that up. I feel there, like there it's maybe home of an RAF base. Yeah, to be honest, I actually, once I got there, I didn't spend much time in Lancaster. Um, I continued <laughs> my, my um, sort of streak of being a terrible student and not going to class very often, but somehow managing to like still squeak out A's. Um, but I actually, I, I really used that year as, as an opportunity to, to sort of experience all, all, all different parts of Europe. Um, and I think it was also, a, it was a big transition for me in terms of my outlook on life in, in so many different ways. Like I finally got out of my tiny town and, um, I used to think that like going into university, I thought that I, I hated big cities and I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to go, my plan had been like, I'm going to like go to, go to McMaster. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to move back to my hometown. I'm going to buy a house. And like, that's my life. Right. And then all of a sudden I go off on this crazy tangent where I end up in Europe and I'm, you know, traveling around to all these cities and discovering like art and culture and history and meeting interesting people from all around the world. And it was like my entire plan that I had laid out for myself two years early, earlier was just like completely demolished. So in a good way, in the best way. <laughs> I've seen that a lot actually when I kind of taken for granted how close 
mainland Europe is mm-hmm. when we're in the UK. Particularly through through my teaching career, we'd have a lot of sort of Kiwi and Aussie um, sort of teachers come over to the UK. And then you sort of, you know, as you got to know them, you're like, oh, what are you doing at the weekend? Like, I'm going to Vienna. And then the following <laughs> weekend, Barcelona. Yeah. So like, <laughs> like, why aren't you why aren't you going here? It's so close. Because um, for them, obviously, and I suppose the same for you in terms of geographically, Canada is very yeah. spread out. So totally. the idea that all these places are on your doorstep, and I don't, don't think we really take it, we appreciate it enough. Uh, maybe it, until it's, it's too late. Really incredible, especially when you have those like super low cost airlines. Like as a student, and I would, and and then with the flexibility of a student schedule, it'd be like, oh, I can go. Where do I want to go next weekend? Like, what's on sale on Ryanair right now? <laughs> and I would just like book a ticket and go. It was amazing. And so, what but, happened? You came to Lancaster for a year. You yeah. did you head back to Canada for the final year, and then yeah. where did you go from there? What was your first job out of university? <laughs> I bet you if you were to guess, if you didn't know anything about my bio, you would never guess in a million years where I ended up. <laughs> Actually, I was going to say teacher, but I assume that is not the first job. That, that you is not. Up. No, my path to teaching was long and, and winding. Um, so I ended up uh, getting a job um, with an organization, and a non-governmental organization at the United Nations in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, and which is in itself is like super interesting. It was a human rights advocacy organization um, where we were um, trying to change policy to, you know, improve human rights around the world. Uh, I don't know how I got this job. I was in zero, I had zero qualifications. <laughs> like I have a degree in art history. Um, I, at the time it was like right after 9-11 and the war in Iraq was going on. And like, I was really into activism and, and human rights. And, and I was involved in a lot of like sort of student activism in, in university. Um, but I, I some that, that somehow I managed to talk my way into this job. Um, but the interesting part about this job beyond it being a human rights organization is that it was run by Franciscan monks and nuns. Um, and I was not Catholic. I had zero knowledge of the Catholic church, but somehow I ended up spending several years sort of embedded in the world of monks and nuns where I would like, literally my job was to travel around to go to nun conferences and present on the UN uh, declaration of human rights and how it impacted their work. And so, yeah, it's, it was a, a really incredible opportunity. Like I loved working in Switzerland and meeting people from countries that at the time I didn't even know existed. You know, it was, it was a phenomenal life experience. And not only that, but career wise, it was um, going into this organization as a young person where they were really focused on the sort of development of their staff. So we did a lot of professional development and personal development. And like it was the best footing I could have come out on in terms of coming from this sort of like irresponsible, I'm going to skip class and go travel the world point of view to like having like real responsibility and having like a real like professional accountability was I think a really great like level up for me. And and the support that came with it from that organization was, um, was pretty amazing. But also my friends were like, you're going to do what? <laughs> like, are you even Catholic? I was like, no, I know nothing about the Franciscans, but I'm going to go and, and live this really and like I met the the Franciscans are really incredible people I could go on for hours about the work that they do but I won't (laughs) I I can imagine people listening now are like hang on director of special projects at future design school and the first job out of university was for an NGO focused on human rights there are like some links there but there's there's a big (laughs) gap between those two I'm sure and so 
kind of where did you go after that and what led you was it a big change yeah so it kind of wasn't it kind of wasn't so uh, actually what happened was after uh about a year and a half in switzerland I had decided, you know, my, my, my dad had just been diagnosed with a brain tumor and there's a bunch of things that were making me want to go back to North America. And so I told my boss that I was leaving and I was going to go to teacher's college. So I was going to go and get my teaching degree. And, and, um, father John Quigley, who was my boss at the time said, you know, um, what about, what about New York city? Is that close enough to home? Like maybe you don't have to leave. We have an office in New York. Um, and so, they transferred me to the New York office, um, which is how I ended up in New York City. Uh, and I was I, they gave me a place to live. It was an abandoned convent in Spanish Harlem um, where I lived with, with three of my coworkers. And I continued working for them for a year. Um, and during that time, I kind of was, you know, felt this like desire to get back into something more creative and more arts oriented. So I started studying arts administration at NYU in the evenings. Uh, so I was doing these night courses in arts administration. And around the same time, I'd become, I just became fascinated with New York City. Like I went from one end of the spectrum to the other to like, I hate big cities to, I just love everything about New York. Like it's constantly changing. The, there's so much going on. Um, I became interested in this thing called psychogeography, which is sort of the um, psychology of how the public built environment impacts your outlook on life. Um, Wait, and what? <laughs> And, yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> and and this was just like a thing on the side. Yeah, yeah, it was I you know, my my then boyfriend, now husband, is an industrial designer and he was part of this this organization called the Conflux Festival that was doing these kind of like arts inter intervention things. I actually met him at a psychogeography walking tour. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Uh, he just came up to me on the street as we were waiting for this thing to start and said hello. And that was seven, 16 years ago. Um, wow. But yeah, so um, all that was kind of going on in the background while I was still working in the human rights. And then it, we actually had a party on the, the rooftop of the convent where I lived. <laughs> and, uh, and a guy came, he was a friend of a friend who was in town visiting. Uh, and he came with his friend to this party and uh, at some point in the evening, we got to chatting and he worked for this organization called the Design Trust for Public Space. Um, and he was telling me that they were looking for someone new to join their program team. Um, and it was, it was a small organization. There was like five full time staff, uh, but they did these really interesting projects around um, reimagining public space in the city. And I was like, I was the, you know, you know, when you get that feeling where you're so excited about something that you're just like buzzing. <laughs> I was like, maybe it was the beers, but <laughs> <laughs> it was also, you know, I was, I was so excited that I, I, I sort of reconnected with him the following week and s submitted my application for this job and uh, ended up going and working at the design trust um, for the next several years after that. And that's really what that started my sort of like trajectory into this world of design. That there's a lot of things in there that are really, really fascinating. I mean, many, many, maybe for another time, but that how you've got those jobs and made those connections. So obviously like the job in Geneva where you didn't necessarily have any of the boxes that you think you would think you'd need to tick for it. And then 
again by sort of saying I've got to move back to North America and and obviously a bit of serendipity around how's about New York which obviously leads to then that party and those connections I think that's that's really fascinating for me especially for young people who are trying to sort of figure out a route in an ever-changing world network like reaching out to people having conversations with people and like you say that moment when someone innocently goes oh we do we do this and we're looking for people and they like throw it off the cuff but you're thinking that sounds like the most incredible thing I could ever do um those opportunities those little network things are really fascinating and uh you sort of wonder like what what the route is for young people to kind of find those other than living in a convent and having a party on the roof (laughs) it's funny because as a kid my dad had this saying that he used to say to me all the time I was actually hard to believe this but I was like painfully shy as a kid and mostly afraid of everything and and to be honest I still am afraid of most things like including like squirrels and butterflies but that's a whole other topic (laughs) for a different (laughs) podcast um but my dad used to say to me all the time walk in like you own the place that was like a, you know, where I was going somewhere where I was feeling like unsure. He'd always just be like, walk in like you own the place less. And I feel like I really took that to heart. And it's something I used to tell my students. I actually used to quote my dad in class all the time. I'd put it on a slide with like Brian Macbeth at the bottom. <laughs> I'd say, you know, when you're unsure about this presentation you're giving or, you know, um, what it is that you want to do next, whether you're looking at applying for programs in university, I was always just walking like you own the place. You know, half of getting anything that you want is um is acting like you you should get it <laughs> in a way you know it's it's really really interesting i think um it, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome on this comes podcast it, yeah it comes up often uh where you know the feeling that you're going to be found out that you're a fraud that you don't deserve to be doing what you're doing because you're not qualified or any number of other reasons and ultimately it does boil down to confidence and um faking that confidence is a legitimate way to to sell yourself right and at some point it's like that that faking fades away um and you're able to actually genuinely come across how you want to and feel some of that confidence um and there will always be times i think where you have those moments where you kind of regress almost and feel a bit shy and it is just that kind of reminder of no I, i can do this even though i don't tick all of the boxes that doesn't mean I shouldn't at least put myself out there or ask the question or be considered because mm-hmm. I've got other things to bring. Um, I love that walk in like you're in the place. I feel like that's really going to stick with me now. Yeah. And I think it's a lot of it's about growth mindset too, right? Is that, you know, I might not be able to tick those boxes now, but having the self-efficacy to believe that you, you can learn those boxes or that you have mm-hmm. the ability to grow and to, to be successful and, and that that comes from like I think small increments, right? Like trying one thing that you that's out of your comfort zone and, and finding success, and all of that research that Albert Bandura has done around those like small wins really um, add up to greater success, and that confidence grows and builds, and those zones of proximal development that we talk about in education. I think um, so much of that plays into into how you build that confidence over time. And then the commitment piece too. The other thing, another quote that I often said to my students that came from my parents is my mom's favorite saying was you sign up, you show up. So it was like, if you say you're going to be able to do these things, like you got to follow through. You can't, right. you know, say I can do these things and then show up and fail. <laughs> You've got to like. Yeah. Integrity, it. right. It's just really yeah. key. 
do do mm. what it is you said that you're going to do. Yeah. I think um, I, there's one other part to this, which is the person on the opposite side being open-minded enough to want to accept someone that doesn't tick all of the boxes. And mm-hmm. I hope that in all the work that you're doing, for example, and working with schools, that we're creating those people that will be open-minded to that because they'll think of themselves. And I've certainly always tried to keep an open mind thinking about all the opportunities that I've been lucky enough to have been given by someone ultimately, like someone's made a choice to choose me for this job or for this contract or this particular thing that I'm working on. And so always trying to kind of pay it forward, if you like, and thinking, oh, I I need a photographer for an event. Well, I could just Google someone that's like the biggest person that's already out there. Or what if I give this person that I know who's really trying to get into photography right now, like an opportunity to come along and do an event. And that might help them then with the next step or with their confidence even even to go out and do this further. It's also let me think about job. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Uh, Applications. You know when it's like the description, job description? And it lists everything. And to most people, you look at it and go, oh, I haven't got a chance. Um, I've seen a few interesting and sort of left field job descriptions. But that's, uh, I'd love to see a bit more or find out a bit more about that space. Now, I think it goes, it goes back to a lot what we talk about with students, right? And how so much of it is about, um, it's not about hard skills. It's not about like, and this is one of one of my things when we talk about education and a lot of work we do at Future Design School is um, shifting the conversation from just content to what are the the, the attributes that, that you need to be successful. And I think the same goes when you're applying for jobs, right? Like what are the, what are the characteristics of an applicant that will make you successful? And, um, 
being open-minded and optimistic and learning how to learn. Like I, I worked at a school, eventually I became an educator. We haven't even got to that part of the story yet. Um, but working in a school where a lot of our students, um, there was a lot of neurodiversity in our school and not all students learned the same. And our big focus for us was learning how to learn. How do we teach kids um, how to, if they don't have the skills now, how do they develop that those cognitive skills to be able to um to learn new things as they go through life and to be a lifelong learner and always kind of push themselves and, and try new things. And I think that's whether it's looking for applying for a job or whether it's the way that we assess kids in school, it kind of goes back to the same thing, right? We often have this checklist of like, these are the things that you need to do. And we're not looking at, you know, what is the process that you're going through in order to, to get there? Something that came up in the Brent interview that you mentioned earlier was his his use of skateboarding with these young kids to show you've got loads of resilience and do you know how I know because you have been working at that trick for months and months and months and you've broken a few teeth out along the way so you know don't tell me you can't do anything because I've seen it you know um, and getting them to reflect on oh how much okay I I, I see what you mean like I, I do have a bit of staying power even though I didn't think I did You uh, had this job in New York that you got on the from the party, and then at some point we get to teaching. Um, that would be yeah. Well, how did that come about? Yeah, so um, I was with the Design Trust for several years, and what we did at the Design Trust is we put together um, teams of um, architects and designers and policymakers uh, together with community agencies and. Uh, and community groups and sort of like city agencies and community groups uh, to solve problems in the public built environment. And we took the public built environment very broadly, like everything from the taxi as being an important part of the public built environment in New York City to um, actual public spaces. And um, in 2008, we were working on uh, a project called Reinventing Grand Army Plaza that was um, literally redesigning a huge public plaza that's at the sort of top of Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And it's essentially like a pedestrian nightmare. It's just like so many lanes of traffic. It's a giant roundabout, I guess would be the best way to describe it. It's a giant roundabout. um, And the city, the Department of Transportation and a community group um, based around Grand Army Plaza came to us and said, we want to redesign this. And so we worked with them to launch this international ideas competition to get architects and designers from around the world to submit their ideas for how this space could be redesigned. And around the same time, um, my then boyfriend, now husband, uh, was volunteering for an organization called the Center for Urban Pedagogy. Um, and he was doing a project with them around the justice system and uh, comic book drawing. So he's a, a comic book artist as well. And so they were drawing uh, comic books around the, their impact of the criminal justice system. And I just developed like this massive crush on this organization, uh, Center for Urban Pedagogy. Um, they they do incredible work around sort of demystifying public policy for both adults and students, but it's always um, founded in this um, uh, baseline of like justice and human rights. So it was kind of playing back to my experience in human rights. And and how do we create a more equitable public space by educating people about their rights um, that they have in public space? Uh, so I reached out to them and I said, you know, we're doing this big ideas competition. I would love to get kids involved. By the time whatever we design is actually built, 
these kids are going to be adults and they're going to be the ones using it because these projects were really long-term projects that we were working on. And so they pulled together a group of high school students um, from the area and we got them together for a day-long design sprint um, around developing their ideas for the plaza. And for me, like, it was one thing to to see the, the amazing ideas these kids had. Like they knew this space, like they skateboarded in this space. They they walked through it to get to school every day. They knew that the park, like the gardens were full of rats, which is something that I didn't know, which is funny when it comes to like the event that we planned there later on that involved a dinner. In the <laughs> plaza. Um, but like they knew all the things about this plaza um, and And so they came up with amazing ideas. But I think what was more interesting to me was this was the first time anyone had ever asked them, like, what is what do you think about this space and what ideas do you have for this space? And you saw these kids who were maybe, you know, the kind of kids who didn't engage very much in traditional school and they didn't really uh, weren't really interested in, you know, reading textbooks and things like that. But all of a sudden they just like lit up. And they they felt like very proud of like the place that they were from. And there was so much empowerment happening in that that it sort of reminded me that I wanted to I wanted to work in education years ago and that it was um, I saw this as like the opportunity, the thing that I wanted to teach. Right. Like I was like, I want to I want to do this all the time. I want to work with young people and help them to see that they can have an impact on the world around them and that design can be a process that allows them to do that. And so I quit my job in New York um, and I moved back to Ontario, uh, to Toronto to, to get my teaching credentials. Um, and everyone in New York thought I was crazy. I remember the, the um, someone who was on our board of directors at the Design Trust pulled me aside and they were like, I heard that you're going to go be a teacher. why would you do that like they just did not understand and I but I to this day I'm like it was the best decision I ever made um I I feel like I was able to have a a big impact on a lot of kids over the years and that is more valuable than you know any kind of fancy job title that I might have had if I had stayed in in New York City um so I went and worked in a school after that I got my teaching degrees and then I went and I worked in a school and I built a program for my students that was all around public space and design and how they could have an impact on it. And whatever course I was teaching, I would somehow figure out a way to like, to make it about let's go out in the city and see what's happening and use the city as a teaching tool. So it was sort of this like place-based project-based way of teaching with design thinking as a, as a sort of foundation for it. And that's what I. What age group were you teaching when you were doing high high school, mostly grade 11 and 12. So they're like our, um, sort of last two years of high school. I don't know if the grades line up with what you guys have in the UK, but yeah, the last two years of high school for the most part. Some grade 10s. I did teach a grade 10 civics class that I loved. Like 14 um, to 16 year olds. Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. 16, 17, 18 year olds. Okay. It's, it's college. Yeah. College in the UK. Um, okay. Key stage four. Yeah. 16 to 18. Five. And what? Stage five. Key stage five. Sorry. And what, which, um, what was your subject? Was it design? No. So it's, um, this is like an interest, another interesting story of like networking and like, you know, telling people what it is that you want to do and, and making it clear. So I, my actual teaching credentials are in English and phys ed um, because of my background in kinesiology and yeah. my communications. Um, 
I didn't have enough uh, studio art courses to be an art teacher, although I did end up teaching art later on. And over the years, I taught civics and art and phys ed and English and um, pretty much everything except for science and math. Uh, but when I was teaching civics, I was doing that thing where I was kind of making it about the city. And my department head came to me and said, I can see that you clearly have something you want to be teaching here. And there's not really a course at our school that does that. Um, so why don't you propose a new course? And I pitched him this course that was sort of design in the city. And um, and then it, it didn't work out. It didn't get through sort of like the approval process because we're only allowed to have so many locally developed courses. And there's like all these rules around curriculum in Ontario. Um, but he came into my English class one day with uh, uh, the curriculum documents, so sort of like our standards and expectations for another course called Green Industries. And he said, do you think that you could do what you want to do in this course? And I was like, oh, let me look at it and see. He's like, no, I'm in a meeting right now where we're making decisions. You have to look at it right <laughs> now. Tell me, can you do it? <laughs> and I looked at it and I saw like a few things about the design process and about um, landscape architecture. And I was like, yes, I think I can do it. He's like, okay. So I ended up teaching this course called Green Industries. And then once I got my hands on the actual course content, I discovered I also had to teach like forestry and horticulture <laughs> and all these things. I was like, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> but I figured it out. You're a lifelong learner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I became like obsessed with trees for a whole year. I, like my husband drove me crazy because all I talked about was trees. I'm like, did you know this about trees? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a pretty open-minded uh, what well, boss or colleague who mm -hmm. sees that you're sort of trying to nudge the curriculum in a direction that you're really passionate about and say let's find a way to really tap into that that's that's not I don't think that's everyone's experience no I I attribute like 90% of my success to the people around me who enabled me to do things that I wanted to do like uh, yeah 100%. <laughs> ben and I kind of recently did a recap where we touched on some of the themes that have come up through all the different interviews and um, a person or certain people seem to come up quite often. Like there's a person in particular that caused the turning point because of something they said or did or the way they supported someone. Mm -hmm. For you, is there anyone in particular, one point like that colleague, for example, or someone earlier in the design trust or in the original um, role in Switzerland that kind of stands out as as a person. Um, I think for each one of those roles, there was there was someone who was like that. You know, like my first boss in Switzerland who took a chance on hiring me because I spoke well in an interview. Um, uh, my boss at the Design Trust was a woman named Deborah Martin, and I still to this day say sometimes I'm going to put on my Deborah Martin hat right now because she was just like brilliant and so confident and like didn't take shit from anybody. And so sometimes I. I put on my Deborah Martin hat um, and uh, that, that colleague who was my um, my department head at the time, his name's Garth Nichols and he's still a close friend and we collaborate on a lot of projects in education. Um, and he was definitely someone who, who opened doors for me. He's also the person who introduced me to future design school. Um, so uh, after several years at Greenwood, uh, the school that I was teaching at, he had met, um, he had moved on to another school and he had met Sandra um, Nagy and Sarah Prevett. Uh, Sarah Prevett's the founder of Future Design School. And he had done a project with them. And when he told me about it, I had that same sort of buzzing feeling that I had when I met the, des uh, the Design Trust folks, where I was like, they're doing what I want to do. And around the same time, I was in the Google Innovator Program. And that was my big project for the Innovator Program was how do we empower teachers to help students solve real world problems? 
And so um, he sort of sent them actually my innovator project. And that was sort of the opening to meet with them and start talking about, they were sort of in the nascent stages, like they had been around for about six months at the time uh, as an organization. And they were kind of figuring out what the the business model was going to be and like what the plan was going to be. And I sort of came along at just the right time and joined the two of them at the very beginning and, and off we went. So. You mentioned there the, the, the Google innovator program, which is probably something we should, uh, we should talk about as well, because obviously, um, so did you, did you apply for that as a teacher then when you were in your school in, in Canada? Yeah, so I was teaching and I I heard about it. I can't even. I I think I'd been to another like Google PD session or something, um, and I'd heard about it. And I, again, I just kind of like figured, why not? I'll throw my hat in the ring and see what happens. <laughs> so I should probably sort of fill any listeners in who are like Google what now. Uh, <laughs> so actually, it's Dean and I met at a Google Teacher Academy, as it was called, in 2013 um, in London, and it's. Uh, it's where, where teachers can apply, gather together, kind of uh, organized by Google for Education to come together and, and kind of take on, some, take on some problems and come up with some ideas to kind of take back into their schools and things like that. But you said you attended one. Um, since then, you've gone on to lead the design aspect of those innovator academies across the world. Um, and so... Uh, Basically, thirty currently thirty six educators get together with you, and you lead them through a design sprint while they come up, they apply with a problem, and then you kind of take them with a, through a process of coming up with some ideas. Um, how like how did that come about from being an attendee to kind of essentially leading the show? Yeah, it was again one of those sort of um, just I think fortuitous things, and and again people enabling. Um, and, and trusting in me in a way. Uh, so I attended the one in the very first one where it had been rebranded as the Innovator Academy in Mountain View in 2016. Um, and I, I got so much out of it. Like the, it, it really was a, like a life changing three days for me. It, you know, changed my trajectory in so many different ways. Um, but uh, one of the um, things that after, after it happened, essentially, I, I filled out the feedback form in terms of, you know, what did you like about this? What do you think could be done better? Um, and I said, my feedback was, you know, I really loved the the process of trying to coming with this problem and trying to solve it. But I think that there's actually some design thinking structures that could be applied to this that would make it better. Um, and so um, Wendy Gordon and Michelle Armstrong, who at the time were involved in, uh, in that Mountain View 2016 program, reached out and said, let's get on a call and chat about it. And so we got on a call and I kind of chatted through some of my ideas and said, you know, this is what I think we could do. And then they invited me to come to Toronto 2016 later that year and said, well, we're already in Toronto. You're in Toronto. Why don't you come and run us through some of these these protocols that you're talking about? And so I showed up and I did it. And I guess it worked (laughs) because then they invited me to come back to the next one and so on. And then it just kind of became an ongoing thing where I was the, the design coach. It was always something that I was doing kind of like outside of future design school. I was also really fortunate that. Sandra and Sarah at Future Design School were like, yeah, like we're going to give you this space and this time off to go and, and do this sort of passion project that you have. Because at the time it wasn't directly linked to um, to our work at Future Design School. Although 
um, since then, Future Design School has done a ton of work with Google on a lot of other projects um, and working with school leaders and with teachers and also in the higher education space as well. We've been working a lot with the higher ed teams at Google recently. I think that basically shows the importance of always leave feedback. <laughs> if, if, you, if you go to an event or a training session or something like that, fill out that form. It's actually genuinely helpful to the people running it. Um, I, you know, I'm sure that isn't true for everybody. And I'm sure some people ask for feedback because they feel like they should. But definitely for me, reading that feedback has always been key to any kind of delivery of anything that I've done. You know, I'm reading the feedback that you maybe don't agree with is, is actually the most important part of, of mm -hmm. those sessions I find because I it, you get to a point where you just actually ignore all of the good stuff in a way you know people will tell you this worked really well so you're like okay I know that works well like, I continue to do it but it's so rare to actually get some constructive feedback through those forms because everyone is generally very nice and so they're just telling you what was great you know keep doing it everything was perfect um, and so to get those little tidbits of info that are constructive is is really helpful. And ultimately for you, that did end up changing like your trajectory, like you said, and what you do um, mm -hmm. just by leaving some honest feedback. So uh, are we relatively up to date now in terms of that that journey from work? Yeah, from your from your studies yeah. where you are now. I think that that kind of that kind of gets us there. Yeah, and I think. Over the past, like I've been with FDS for five years now, and over the past five years, we've really grown from, um, you know, we started out that first summer, actually, before I met Sandra and Sarah, they they were running summer camps for kids to test some of these ideas of how do you teach these concepts to students. Um, and we've grown from that those initial summer camps into, you know, doing a ton of strategy work and and really thinking holistically about school transformation beyond just getting young people to solve meaningful problems. Although I think that does still remain a big, the, the kind of the heart behind a lot of our work is is empowering young kids to to go out and have an impact on the world right now. And that's I think what drives me now in terms of our passion is is helping kids see that there are a lot of ways that they can impact the world and they don't need to wait until they're grown up and they've gone to university and um, and till, until they can have a big impact on the world around them. And that's really what drives our work at FDS is um, creating a more student-centered uh, learning environment that really reflects the diversity of kids in our schools as, as well as the um, diversity of experiences that we think kids need to have in order to be successful. And it's not always just getting straight A's on the tests, but rather those other skills that have really led to uh, probably the success of a lot of the people that you've interviewed on this show, um, you know, being adaptable and flexible and problem solvers. And that's what we keep hearing from industry is we need people who can solve problems in teams. That's like the most important thing. So. You have a daughter now, she's nearly mm -hmm. a year old, and we're coming to the end here. I really want to touch on, you know, imagine there are parents listening, maybe even some young people as well. What's the biggest piece of advice, maybe to parents, to help them have their children think about problems in this way and be problem solvers from a young age and maybe pick up some of these soft skills? And... And what about a young person themselves? Like, 
what are the, what are the key things they could do? Hmm. I feel like some of my answers here might be like controversial for parents. <laughs> like, I'm not um, one, but Ben is. So. <laughs> yeah. I think like, um, you know, focusing less on like what grades your, your child is getting um, and focusing more on um, the, the, the learning process, I think is, is really important. I think too often we get bogged down in, you know, but that they need to get grades so they can get into university so they can get this so they can get that. And like, we're already trying to map our kids lives out when they're like in kindergarten for what they're going to do. Um, so I think letting go of that is one thing in terms of getting them to solve problems. And this, I'm just stealing from my own parents playbook. I, I, you know, what they did for me as a kid was really whenever I had a question or there was a problem, they wouldn't solve it for me or they wouldn't tell me the answer. Like this was before the internet. We couldn't just, you know, ask our Google home to tell us the answers to things. And we had a, a set of encyclopedias on, on like the shelf in the living room. And if I had a question, my dad was like, go look it up. Like he wouldn't tell me <laughs> the answers to things. And I think that made me curious. Um, and I think fueling that curiosity by encouraging your kids to ask questions and asking them things like, what do you wonder? What do you notice? Um, where do you see problems in your world? I think that we underestimate the ability of kids to find problems as well as solve those problems. Like they see problems that maybe we don't and they might have solutions that maybe we can't see. And so I think um, just modeling that, that approach to problems and, and by asking those questions, I think is a, a good approach. Um, I feel like there was another part of your question there. No, I think that's great. And then this, the second part is, I guess, for young people. Ben, do you want to jump in first? I see you're going to jump in with something. I was just going to say, I, if I, I hear Isla's got something to say in the background, if you need to deal with that. Oh, yeah, you just started screaming downstairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's the parent in me going, if you need to take that. <laughs> no, it's okay. My, I'm on work duty today and my husband's on daddy duty today. So we, we swap back and forth. <laughs> So I guess the other part is, I think that's great advice, by the way. And I, there are, it's funny because I speak to so many people, actually, people in education even, that agree around the grades thing and that really we're using grades because it's kind of a good way to measure and compare. Um, it's not a good way. It, you know, it's perceived to be a good way is maybe a better way of putting it to, to kind of measure the ability of someone to do something rather than focusing on their skills of solving problems, which is... Kind of, yeah, I think we're just measuring the wrong things, right? right? Like we're often measuring like how well did you memorize the content or can you tell me what I want to hear? Which is like when I say I was a terrible student, I was really good at, at jumping through the hoops. Like I knew how to answer the correct question in the right way to get the right mark. But I wasn't really like engaged in my learning. And for my own kids, I'd rather have them be engaged in in asking big questions and being curious Um uh than I, than I would in having them jump through the hoops of school. So, And in the position that you're in, you're saying with Future Design School, you're working with not just schools, but higher education, uh, corporations, communities. When you put all those pieces together, do you start to see some of the barriers to moving forward with the types of skills that you're working on educators with? And is that is that in the education space or, the you know, where are those if you had a you know, political magic wand, what are the policies you're untying and throwing away? <laughs> um, the first policy that I'd untie and throw away that we don't really have much of here in Ontario, but it's a big problem, I think, in a lot of the, in, in the U.S. is a lot of the standardized testing that is 
um, I know it's it's evolving and that um, a lot of people see it as important data, but I think that it, it becomes too much too much focus on on the standardized test data and not enough focus on this, the students in the class. So that would be the first thing that I'd get rid of. Um, but in terms of like mapping all those pieces together, to me, I see it as like a, a bottom up and a top down approach. Like K-12 teachers are some of the most innovative, creative incredible people like you both know you've been there um, that that you'll ever meet and I think that those teachers that are given that that space to be creative and to have the freedom and flexibility to trust their own professional judgment and to respond to the needs of the kids in their classroom are really doing incredible innovative things and I think that right now higher ed is a bit of like a like the elephant in the room in a way because it's sort of that it's still a little bit more traditional in its approach to teaching and learning, but across the board, there's a lot of like really innovative things happening in higher ed, but I think across the board, it's still very much, you've got people who were there doing research. They weren't trained to be a great teacher. They were, you know, they were trained to, to do research and to, that's what they want to do. And teaching is a thing they do on the side. And so I think that the pedagogy in higher ed really needs to evolve um, as well as those admission practices. And so like the top down needs to be that, higher ed needs to sing, signal to K-12 that those innovative things you're doing, we're going to accept that. And we're going to accept your, you know, your future of a profile, your profile of a future ready graduate in lieu of a transcript of marks in order to admit kids to our institution. And like, if we could do that, then it opens up like a huge amount of possibility. And for kids who never saw themselves as successful, um, to see themselves as, as having an opportunity to explore some of those avenues that they thought were closed because they weren't good at math or they didn't do well in science class. Um, if it was, if admissions to university were based on a more holistic model, you might find opportunities for some of those kids. Um, which, and then same thing with the workforce, like let's take higher ed out of the equation and think about how do you have a, a, a pipeline that goes straight from kids who are super curious and creative going into really innovative industries and and saying, you know, we, we're not going to require you to go through that four year degree if that degree is not actually giving you any relevant skills that are going to help you in this profession. Like, why do we place so much value on this four year degree? And, and how do we break that up and think differently about that? Wow. I, for one, am looking forward to the day. Les Macbeth <laughs> is Minister of Education in Canada. <laughs> um I, I, I can imagine there are a lot of people kind of nodding their heads along um, as they listen to this, because it feels like sometimes we continue to do things just because it's the way they've always been done. And one of the challenges is, you know, change is hard. Right? And so the more often you change things, the more difficult it seems, but that should never be a reason for not doing it. Uh, just kind of reflecting on on your own journey, Les, to like you could never write that or predict it or pick it as a journey you were going to go on, like with with a goal of I'm going to work for future design school, because, you know, when you start off, that doesn't exist. Like you said about, no, I want to be a web designer. And the concept of that being a thing was just a little bit hard to grasp at that time. So it kind of feels like, again, and we've got this previous guest as well, Plotting out a journey for oneself is is probably just a waste of time and just something that you'll just uh, frustrate yourself with. And it seems that just taking opportunities and speaking to people and building connections and and just kind of and like you said with with your dad's quote, walking like you own the place. Though I feel like there's a combination there of walking like Deborah 
and own the place is probably the the ultimate version of that. Um, that's kind of my takeaway, I think, of this one is is that just embrace the opportunities that lie in front of you and uh, so be it, whether, whether they take you in one direction or the other. Um, it seems to be those little spark moments, that the little deviations you weren't expecting that have kind of led to lots of different interesting things. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of not really a question, just more of a reflection on um, going back to my own six and nine-year-old and, and maybe sort of making sure they feel comfortable in just kind of exploring things. Oh, I was just, um, I was going to say, I, I, this is probably the fluffiest thing you'll hear me say, but I always refer to it as being open to the universe. Ooh, that's going on the uh, Instagram post, that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I was yeah. going to just kind of tack on to the end of what Ben had said there and basically say, I think a key part of that is maybe not plotting a journey for yourself, but being open to your values, your opinions, your needs and wants changing over time and uh, and that you might you might also just have your heart set on what your objective in life is which also works but I think being open to the fact that that can change um, is also okay and that isn't that in itself isn't a failure it's actually part of that growth mindset that you mentioned earlier as well um, it's been really great to talk to you to find out about all the work that you've done in future design school and your work with nuns and monks there's a part of me that really wants to get more into geopsychology. Psychogeography. Psychogeography. There we go. Close enough. You can start by knowing what it is. <laughs> start by getting um, it right. <laughs> so I feel like I'm going to go and read a new Wikipedia page now um, to, to get a, a quick look into that. But thanks so much for your time today, Liz. It's been great to catch up and find out more about your journey. Thanks so much for having me. I hope that other people listen to it and it helps them to own their own narrative and push themselves out of their comfort zone and try anything. So. Awesome. Thank you so much.